This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We have been in 1 Samuel for a number of weeks. Uh, and when we finish 1 Samuel, we're actually going to continue on into 2 Samuel. Uh, but I realized in preparation for this passage uh, that there's one of my bigger pet peeves of myself. You guys you have those things that like you do that you're like, man, I hate that I do that. Uh, and, and one thing that I do that really bothers me is use Christianese. Now, Christianese, you know, is just supposed to be like another language, right? Um, but it's not necessarily the technical Christian language, uh, maybe like abstract theological words or something that, that hopefully I could define, hopefully. Um, but Christianese is actually those words that are kind of cliches or sentimentalisms uh, that don't necessarily have the full heart behind them. Um, they're things where we assume that we all know what we're talking about, and yet none of us are really sure what we're talking about. Now, there's a YouTube video uh, that is from about 10 years ago now uh, that, that touches on a number of these the Lord is on the throne, uh, intending to mean that, like, the Lord is sovereign over everything, but we're kind of using this, like, uh, sideline scriptural language, which is not necessarily a problem, but we all kind of nod in agreement. We're like, yes, the Lord is on the throne. But what does that mean for, like, the stuff going down in my life? He's backsliding. Like, backsliding. All right, so they're, like, falling, falling back into sin, right? That's, that's what that's supposed to mean. But what, what exactly are we, are we supposed to intercede? Are we supposed to do something about this? How's your heart? I just don't see fruit in their life. We pray for unspokens and for travel mercies. And we use phrases like guard his or her heart, meaning really that we're supposed to have self-control in our relationships. Now, I don't know if you've ever said some of these. I know I've said plenty of them. I'll probably do some today and you can call me on it actually. But the problem is, is that it's kind of vague language. Like I said, we all assume that we know what we're talking about, but none of us are really sure how to live it out in our lives. And there's another phrase that kind of follows this same pattern, but we don't hear it as often. Um, but maybe if you've been in the church for a long time, you have, and it's called servant leadership. Servant leadership. And we hear it and we go, yeah, servant leadership, that's something we should strive for. Uh, I think I've heard of servant leadership. How do you, how do, you do it again? Most, most of the leaders that I know seem, seem to be served. I mean, they may be humble people, um, but they're, they're served by others to, to do the things that they need to do, right? Uh, to lead companies or lead organizations or lead teams in the ways that they need to lead. What does servant leadership actually look like? Well, the Bible does describe servant leadership. It actually says it is the kind of leadership that we should all strive for. And here's why that matters, uh, because whether or not you think of yourself as a leader or not, you are. Uh, kids that go to school, you're a representative of Christ to your peers, even in Christian schools. In this leadership role, you are an ambassador. If you're not going to school, you're still this for your siblings, especially those of you who are older. If you're younger, you may be this for your friends in the neighborhood. And adults do the same thing. They do it when they go to work, and they do it in their marriages, and as they parent you. Sometimes we recognize that we are fit and gifted for certain leadership roles, and so we volunteer for them. But sometimes we're voluntold by circumstances of life or just birth order, right? We just assume responsibility and leadership by nature of life. And the Bible says that it is actually good for, scriptures to, uh, for, for Christians to pursue leadership. It is actually good for them 
to pursue leadership wherever they find themselves. So much so that even Peter and Paul in prison can take leadership roles among their fellow inmates. All of us, whatever God has called us to be, should strive to be leaders in whatever spheres of influence he has given us. But now we're left with this question of, so what does servant leadership look like? If that's what the Bible lifts up as the example, how do we learn to do this? Now, there's many, many, many scriptures that are going to talk about servant leadership. Uh, And to study them all, we could write books upon books upon books. Today, we're going to look at one passage. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 22, and we're going to see what it says about servant leadership. And it's going to teach us about core principles of servant leadership that are very important for us. And from there, we could go throughout the rest of Scripture and and see other examples. But today, we're focusing on 1 Samuel 22. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And just as a side note, if you're looking in your bulletin, you're probably feeling the panic rising. Um, Yes, your pastor does love to preach over large sections, especially in 1 Samuel. I... Um, I'm not going to apologize for that, actually. Um, but if you do need to sit down, please feel free to. Um, they're, they're, uh, I, but if, if you are able to stand out of reverence for God's word, please do. 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse? None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. 
And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. This is the word of the Lord. May it fall in fertile soil and may it bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times. Please be seated. The failure and successes of the leaders in this story are, are probably readily apparent to you. I hope you can see right off the bat that David is the good leader and Saul is the wicked leader. But never forget that although Saul is a wicked leader, he is an effective leader. We often mistake effectiveness for goodness in our leaders. But David leads with an entirely different demeanor. Servant leadership is what we're going to see from David from here, um, he, he, here on out. Now, as a reminder of where we are in the story, and to catch us up, because our last sermon was over uh, 1 Samuel 19, so we've skipped over a couple of chapters. I'm going to kind of fill in some, some gaps here. Saul is king, but in his wickedness, he sinned against God, and so God sought out another king who would be after his own heart, and he anointed David. He didn't install David yet, but he anointed David. So up to this point, David has served Saul on and off in his courts and among his military, and he's been earning deference from the constituents of the people of Israel. Like, people are starting to see, like, this guy is a good leader. Now, this growth in political clout is not lost on Saul, who is increasingly incensed at David. Last week, in chapter 19, we saw Saul try to confront this plan that God had put into place, and Saul was literally brought to his knees, to his face, before the spirit of the living God. But even after this experience, Saul still hated David, and he hadn't been removed from office. David is fleeing for his life. So in chapters 20 and 21, he stopped to see Ahimelech, the priest in Nob, for basic provisions and for a weapon. And there was a spy there, a herdsman of Saul, Doeg the Edomite. So from there, he leaves and he goes to Gath. Now, Gath is an interesting place. Um, ironically, it's the place where they say that Goliath is from. And so when David arrives, he realizes that he may not be in the safest place for him, considering he killed their champion once upon a time. And so he pretends uh, to be insane, crazy, like running about and like spittle running down his beard is how the, um, the Bible describes it. He flees again from Gath, uh, and he comes to the cave system of, a, of Adullam. And from what I'm told, you can still go see this cave system today and like crawl down through it. It was a place kind of hidden among the hills in a place where he could be safe and yet see enemies coming towards him. Now, I think some of us maybe that grew up in the church kind of know this story, and we've heard it. We're like, yes, David had to run away from Saul for a long time. He's in the wilderness with like his band of 400 people. Um, and, and we kind of think and get this idea that David had no other option. But just remember the story thus far. He was friends with Samuel, the prophet who could make kings and break kings. Samuel had just brought Saul, Samuel, Samuel and his band of prophets to his knees before the spirit of a living God. 
He had won the affections of many throughout Israel through his military pursuits. He even had Saul's own family members, his son Jonathan and daughter Michal, on his side. And he knew that God, having anointed him already, meant that God was going to make him king someday. A very real option for David was to start a coup, to marshal his army, and the people probably would have backed him. But David trusted in God's timing and God's plan. See, the thing was, David was unwilling to disobey God by murdering the official put in charge over him. David didn't know how it was all going to work out, but he knew that God had not yet removed Saul from office. Although he knew he would be next in line, although Saul's son Jonathan, David's best friend, could also affirm that Jonathan is next in line, he knew he must wait upon the Lord. David thought that Saul was still worth honoring even though he was wicked. Not because Saul was worth honoring in and of himself. Saul was worth honoring because David's God commanded it. David's God commanded it. See, the first thing we learn about the servant leadership of David is that he is humble before his God's commands. Although he knows the end, that he's going to be king, he never lets the end justify means that would go against God's commands. Although given opportunity time and time again in these next chapters to kill Saul, he won't do it. And it's not cowardice. It's respect of God's law. Servant leaders are humble, humble specifically before God's law. You see, instead of of kind of taking his own route, David would have to choose persecution. (laughs) He knew that if he didn't take out Saul when he had the chance, that he was going to have to choose persecution, alienation. Uh, David would um, have to flee to the wilderness to allow Saul's propaganda machine to slander him. Um, He was going to be separated from his wife. His family was going to be threatened. It says his parents and his brothers, right, had to be um, brought to him. Uh, Injustices against entire cities, He doesn't know how to reconcile all these things that are happening, but he can say, I know that I must not disobey my God, even if it means loss of everything that I hold dear, loss of my land, loss of my money, loss of my family. Humble servants are willing to experience persecution and suffering rather than disobey God. Servant leaders never let the end justify the means. Now, occasionally, some of us may actually be faced with persecution from um, like a direct superior uh, when we choose to follow God instead of, um, uh, instead of obeying to kind of our own whims. But more often, I think that we're faced with a general sort of cultural persecution that requires our life be more humble than we would like it to be. It causes us to lose some arguments that we would rather not lose Uh, to get passed over for positions that we really think that we deserve. But we're humble before God's law. David could have started a coup, taken the fight to Saul, but for David to murder or harm Saul would mean that David was actively fighting against the king that God has put on the throne. 
even when that king was wicked. Do you prioritize obedience to God's commands even if it means that you're going to suffer? Of course, we could say this about wicked rulers in our own country. Do you think that our civil authorities are worth obeying? Many of them aren't. But God commands us to honor them anyway. I mean, think about when God gave the command in Romans 13 uh, to, to honor, uh, you know, the, the emperor and the people put in power. These were wicked people murdering Christians. It follows that up with paying taxes. God commands us to honor them anyway. Which is more important in your life? Which is more voiced, honor to God or your own defense of what you think is right? What is more voiced in your heart or on social media or around the dinner table? Honor or dishonor to these authorities? Are you a leader in your family who lets the end justify the means, or are you a leader who is humble before God's commands first and foremost? Every single one of God's commands, not just the ones that you happen to be good at. David lost access to his land and money, wealth, wife, his family, parents, and brothers. Do we choose to obey God even if it means loss of access to our land, our money, and wealth? Maybe another way to say it is, do we choose to obey God even when it means our discomfort? I know this is true for me. If I sense that proclaiming God's truth, um, or I've had those, those moments of pressure uh, where I felt that either I should say something or that I should not say something that I'm about to say, uh, because I know that it'll just go better for me. It's while I'll omit certain information uh, that might make a business deal more in my favor. It's why when I was in school, um, I felt like it could cost me friends if I didn't laugh at a joke that they were making even though it mocked my God and my king. It's why I can so quickly tell a white lie to avoid familial conflict. Am I humble before God's law or my own comfort? Does our fear of suffering, being ostracized, losing access to our land and money and wealth, does it cause you to stoop to disobedient methods? Because then the end is really your own comfort, not humility before God's law. We will continue to see that David will do no such thing. He's willing to accept suffering rather than disobey God. He is humble before God himself as we should be, and he doesn't allow the end to justify the means. So David's humility before God's law is the first thing that we learn about um, being a servant leader. The second thing that we're going to learn about being a servant leader, though, uh, concerns that word servant. Now, I just want you to think about the kind of people that joined David out into the wilderness, the kind of people he was called to lead. Look at verse 2. Everyone who was in distress, debt, and bitter in soul. Let me just describe these people for you really quick. Debt, literally people who had no money. There appears to be evidence of unfair lending practices among the Hebrew and Israeli people at this time, but nevertheless, these were people on the verge or probably homeless, which makes sense because they're willing to live with David in a cave. Generally speaking, though, homeless people uh, aren't the kind of people that uh, are going to win you great battles or great political clout. These are the people that David is called to serve. What about distressed? These are defined as the people that have been overcome by life's troubles. Uh, maybe they're indebted, but they've experienced illness, plague, death of loved ones, unfortunate business downturns. The word basically means those who are struggling to keep the boat from capsizing. Their lives are, are almost underwater, but not quite. The waves are crashing over. 
Now, bitter in soul might be the ones with the boats actually underwater. These are people that have possibly experienced debt or distress as well, but who are bitter. The Bible will often attach this with a sense of uncontrolled crying, particularly maybe a bitterness towards God for the hand that they've been dealt. This word was used of Hannah. If you remember Hannah, way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, she was the mother of Samuel, the prophet, um, but she was barren before she had Samuel. And it says that she was bitter, crying before the Lord uncontrollably, asking for a child. Now, something about bitterness, we often associate the word bitterness with sin, um, but one commentator said it this way, generally bitterness or emotional sorrow is not regarded as sin. However, when one rejects the sovereign plan of God for his or her life and responds in bitterness and anger against God, this is sinful behavior. It appears that David himself may have been bitter in this circumstance. Hannah definitely was. But it appears that neither of them, or at least the Bible doesn't comment, rejected God's sovereign plan for their lives, as we talked about in this first point, but they were willing to suffer. It appears that the Bible can draw a distinction between um, English words that we might use between bitterness and resentment. Uh, that seem to kind of go hand in hand in our emotional vocabulary. Okay, all of that to say, these are the kinds of people that David is called to serve. The indebted, the distressed, and the bitter in soul. Bad leaders blame the people that they've been given. They cry out, if I'd just been given the right people, then I would have succeeded in my mission and goals. If my kids had just learned respect, then our family may have been held together. If, I, uh, my, if my employees had had the right skills, then we would have accomplished those goals that we set out to do. For Saul in our passage, if he had just had more dough eggs around, then he would have already had David captured. But good leaders don't just work with, they love the people put under their care. They don't despise the foolishness that drove them to the loan sharks for unnecessary purchases. They don't uncomfortably shy away from tears of bitterness over infertility, but offer comfort for those distressed and bitter in soul, because good leaders sympathize and empathize with their people. That's what it means to serve in servant leadership. Are you a leader who sympathizes and empathizes with the people that God has given you? Do you sympathize and empathize with your children? with the millennials or Gen Z that you work with, or the Gen X and boomers that you report to? What about the homeless, the distressed, the bitter in soul? Are these people that you sympathize and empathize with or deride in the interior of your own heart? Are you long-suffering with them, or do you choose to get out of the conversations as fast as you can? Because I read this recent, as I was uh, preparing for this sermon, I, I read this um, interesting article describing how humans interact with each other. And they said that it is rare for a person to ask more than two meaningful questions of another person, just in general, <laughs> especially if that other person is in distress. We want to help. We want to be helpful people to quickly resolve the struggle, but we don't want to suffer someone else's helplessness or confusion. If all we need to do is offer to move furniture or give a few dollars to settle the issue, then we are more than willing but to sit with Job in his agony is more than the vast majority of human beings will do, even for those that they love most. Even for those that they love most. Good leaders are humble, 
humble before God's law, they'd rather accept persecution and suffering. They lovingly serve those under their charge, even to the indebted, distressed, and bitter in soul. But the Bible says there's one more characteristic that servant leaders have that truly sets them apart. Now, there's this big story in the middle of this passage about the vindictiveness of Saul. And I hope you paid attention to the drama in this story because it is dramatic. You know, like I love Lord of the Rings. I can almost like picture a Lord of the Rings scene or maybe Game of Thrones. I haven't seen Game of Thrones, but I imagine that it would be a similar setup. You got Saul sitting underneath this tree in the place of honor, like with a spear in his hand, right? His people lined up before him and he's kind of the drill sergeant. He's just screaming at these people. He's like, why didn't you tell me that my son was conspiring against me? Do you think that David is going to treat you as well as I have? Saul's being a bully. He's intimidating his own people with a spear that he's been known to throw at those who have made him angry. Doeg the herdsman speaks up. He's kind of being a snitch, actually. He was already acknowledged to be a servant of Saul, so we kind of saw this coming if you were to read the previous chapters. It says, I saw David with Ahimelech. Saul summons Ahimelech and all the priests who are at Nob. Saul corners them and then commands their death. But in kind of the climax of the scene, nobody moves. <laughs> you can almost imagine like the guard there being like, I'm not doing this. Like it's gone too far. I imagine his life wasn't that great after that moment, but that's a conversation that scripture doesn't enlighten us to. No one moves, the guard refuses. So Saul turns to his faithful servant Doeg, who kills 85 priests. And he puts the whole town of Nob to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he puts to the sword. But, interjects the narrator of our story, but one of the sons of Ahimelech escaped, Abiathar. He escaped the fury of the wicked king and his servant Doeg. And I would imagine that Abiathar to be bitter in soul and distressed because he probably just lost everything. His house his family, definitely his father. They don't say how old he is. Maybe he had wife and kids of his own, gone. Livestock, no longer there. He might be in debt himself. Everything is gone. He flees to David, and what does he find in the servant leader of David but self-sacrifice from David? And here's, here's what the self-sacrifice looked like from David. It looks like David owning responsibility for something he's barely responsible for. Look at verse 22. David says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house. Now, this isn't just a display of empathy and sympathy. David could have accomplished that by saying, yes, my parents too are under threat, and I had to find a safe place for them. I'm sorry that you couldn't find the same. No, this is more than that. that the phrase, I have occasioned the death, is kind of um, it's difficult to translate from the Hebrew that it was originally written in. It's a military term that means to completely surround so that there's no point of escape. And David says that in the first person, um, which if you kind of like think way back to grammar, it just means that like he's owning the action of the verb. I encircled your family so that there was no escape. I did that. I'm sure Abiathar and David could recognize that David was hardly responsible for the death of Abiathar's family. They were both fleeing for their lives. And yet David, the good leader that he is, desires to bring healing to his people by absorbing the responsibility of another and owning the fraction of responsibility that might be his. 
Maybe he should have avoided Nob altogether, gone without weapon and provisions. He sacrifices his own self-rightness to be able to say, I erred. What kind of healing was David hoping to accomplish? Well, I believe that he was hoping that one day there would be peace and unity between um, the children of Benjamin, the tribe that Saul comes from, and the descendants of Abiathar, that they wouldn't hate each other for forever, but that he would bring unity among his people. Quite possibly, David even wanted there to be peace between Israel and Edom, the nation that Doeg came from. He self-sacrificially absorbed the damage. Now, I doubt that, that David uh, healed Abiathar's scars, right? A simple self-sacrificial statement that he was responsible couldn't take away the bitterness that Abiathar might have in his soul. The loss of his fathers and siblings, possibly wife and children, livestock and home, I'm sure that Abiathar would carry these scars for a long time. But good leaders absorb what they can for the sake of their people. David had been the occasion of the loss of everything that Abiathar cared about, David would own that and try to make it right self-sacrificially. An author that has studied and thought about leadership a while, John C. Maxwell, said this. He said, many people today want to climb the corporate ladder because they believe that freedom and power are the prizes waiting at the top. But they don't realize that the true nature of leadership is self sacrifice. The best leaders absorb hurts so that others may flourish, that their employees may flourish, that their organizations may flourish, that their families and their friends, that their schools might flourish, that their communities might flourish. They're willing to absorb that which the community ought not, and they can do so because their sights aren't set on their own self-advancement, but are set on a greater goal, a greater love. Now, David was a great leader, but all of his humility Um, humble servanthood um, and self-sacrifice couldn't bring the healing that his people so desperately needed. David's self-sacrificial leadership set the stage for a true healing that could be found in only one leader. You see, although David was God's anointed king in waiting, David was foreshadowing a greater king a greater leader, a humble king who would accept persecution rather than disobey God, a servant king who would faithfully love all those who came to him, distressed, indebted, and bitter in soul, and a self-sacrificial king who would, rely true, who would really truly provide healing by absorbing in himself the consequences of others. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was humble before God's law, and having never broken it once, never deserving any persecution, never deserving any suffering. Though tempted by Satan himself, he would not deny God by making bread, but he would obey his father's plan that he would suffer hunger. He would not put God to the test by throwing himself off the temple mount, but would trust the word of God. He would not take the easy route to leadership, but would take the road of suffering and death set before him. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a servant who would welcome those lame, diseased, those untouchable. He would sit with sinners and tax collectors, those who robbed others. He would sympathize and empathize with children that his culture ignored. He would welcome those women that society had cast aside. 
Jesus Christ of Nazareth would self-sacrificially take upon himself the sins of the whole world. He would absorb what our community could not bear to carry for our own flourishing. He brings healing to racial and ethnic strife in the New Testament, and he can do so today, and in his kingdom, it will all be healed. He brings healing to our broken and shattered sexualities of our past in the New Testament, as he did then, and in his new kingdom coming, there will be no brokenness, and every tear will be wiped away, and every wrong righted, because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Our leadership is imperfect, so is David's. You guys can probably think of the infamous stories of David's failed leadership. But Jesus's is perfect, he will not fail. David, when Abiathar shows up at his side, at the very end of our passage today, looks at Abiathar and he says, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you will be in safekeeping. Jesus Christ is the best leader, the Lord and giver of life, the redeemer, the brother, the friend. He is the one that no matter where we find ourselves in our lives, no matter what we're running from in our past, no matter where our consciences are seared and our bitterness rages, no matter what distress has plagued us, he is the leader who when we run to him says, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, and with me you will be in safe keeping. Brothers and sisters, our servant leadership that we try to exercise here can only happen really and truly. That humility, that servanthood, that self-sacrificialness can only really truly be, um, happen within ourselves if we are really and truly convinced that the one that we look to did it for us. The way that we can choose suffering rather than disobey God. The way that we can love those who make us a little sick, who make us a little bit exhausted, the way that we can self-sacrificially give for people that are not ourselves is because we know that there's a king who has done it for us. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls. And Jesus didn't want us to just hear that proclaimed over us, but wanted to know it and see it. We, of course, see it in his life, in the way that he chose suffering rather than disobedience, the people that he chose to love in his self-sacrificial life. But he also wanted us to not just see the example of it and try to imitate it, but to say that we are united to him, that his body and his blood is sufficient to accomplish that which he set out to do. He will not be a leader who fails us, and in his arms we truly are in safe keeping. The night that Jesus was betrayed, 
the night that he was going to complete the work that would provide rest for his disciples, he had last supper with his disciples, and he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. Jesus wanted us to know that just as bread and wine nourishes our physical bodies, so this bread and wine, his body and blood, crucified and shed for us, is sufficient to heal our deepest wounds, to transform us into servant leaders. But more importantly, by this sign, he wants us to assure us that through um, his Holy Spirit, by, the power, by his word, that we would share in the body and blood of Christ himself, that we would know that we don't have what it takes to do it on our own, that we need him to do it for us, that we are fleeing a destruction happening around us by a wicked king, and we come to the only one who can provide us safekeeping, the only one who can redeem us and make us whole. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and we can come down the center aisle here. We can come to these serving stations on my right and my left. There's gluten-free bread available. Um, if you have need of that, just notify your server. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Jesus, you are the leader long looked for, the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would deliver us from failed leaders and deliver us from ourselves. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take this small bite of bread and this thimble of wine and that you would allow it to make your promises of your word truly nourishing to us spiritually. That by them we might be reminded that Jesus actually bled, that Jesus actually died, and that Jesus actually rose. Allow us to remember that Jesus is not just here to save us spiritually, but that his salvation reaches into our physical realm, into our very bodies, that he will resurrect our bodies and one day we will have bread and wine with him face to face. Assure us that this leader will not fail in any of these promises. We ask in his name. Amen.